before we dive into the message, I just, I've got to say this because uh, all of my kids are here for the holidays, and that's a lot, and the grandkids and all of that, and it's a lot, and um, so there was a wedding, that's why they were all here. There was a wedding yesterday, one of my sons got married, and uh, it was pretty awesome, it was pretty awesome, and uh, he, he, he actually asked me to officiate. Whew, I need another hanky just thinking about it. But that was really just a blessed, blessed time. Um, but at the wedding, there was a pastor of a small church in San Jose who is linked to this church. Uh, we all come from the same lineage of churches. And I mentioned this in the first service, and I just wanted to mention it again. And we hadn't talked for uh, a number of years, this other pastor and, and myself, and we knew each other pretty well. And, and he wondered where I was going to church. And when I mentioned this church, he knew it well because it comes from the same family of churches. And he knew it well. And he knew of Pastor Arnold, though he hadn't met him. And the reputation of this church and the reputation of our pastors is powerful in this valley, and you may not know that, may not be aware of that, but just know it and just understand the blessing that we have here in this church of pastors that preach the Word of God, line upon upon line, precept upon precept. You know, we just went through the book of Acts. I started here. We were finishing John, and and, uh, I said Luke last, but it was John, the book of John that we went through before Acts, and, and just all of the Bible studies, all of the, the, the Wednesday nights, and just the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God is so powerful, so effective, and so very important. And, and I was talking to my buddy, and, and it's kind of a known thing among pastors that no pastor that, you know what, he's feeling a little bad that he didn't go to seminary, and that kind of came up in the conversation, and, and I said, yeah, I know, but, and we both looked at each other, like has happened with other pastors, and they're like, tell him don't do it. He has this anointed gift of God to preach and proclaim the Word of God and to break it down, and seminary can't teach you that. Seminary doesn't give you that gift. It's straight from God Almighty through the pastor for this church. And as I've said before, and, and there's others, and John's here, and he's was part of that, that uh, the very first time I heard him preach, I look over at my buddies that were here, and I said, I'm here. This is where I need to be. And I'm so thankful. Amen. So thankful to be here. Okay. We use a word all the time. We use it all the time. It's the word theology, right? You're so familiar with the word. It literally means a word about God, made up of two Greek words, theos, God, and logos, a word. So the word theology means a word about God. And we, it's come to be the common word of anytime we're in the Bible and we're studying the Bible and we're breaking it down, you know, we're studying theology. And that's just become an umbrella word for all the different studies that we partake of and participate of in the Bible. And that word, uh, logos, is attached to as a suffix of many words that we're familiar with, archaeology, the study of ancient things, 
Christology, the study of Christ, a word about Christ, and on and on. You could think of others. Um, But there's a word, it's not a word in the New Testament, but it's a word that we use a lot to describe passages of the New Testament or songs that we sing or things that we read, and it's the word doxology. And so that's the top of your outline there, doxology. And I'll just tell you what it means, literally, a word about glory. A word about glory. So we see throughout Scripture, we see doxology all the time coming up. We see it in Paul's writings, and we're going to look at some. We see it in John's writings, and we're going to look at some. We see it in many of the epistles, and we're going to look at some. We see it in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Psalms over and over and over again. And we see this word that we've come to call doxology, which means to ascribe to someone or something the praise that's worthy of his name, to ascribe to Jesus the praise that's, that he is due, the praise that's worthy of his name. Let's give you an example. Let's turn first over to Colossians chapter 1. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you just a little background of how Paul wrote his letters. If you look at verse 1, of Colossians chapter 1, as you get there, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So Paul, in the first line, is establishing that this letter is authentic and authoritative. This is from Paul, I, Paul, the apostle, and this letter that's coming to you is authentic and authoritative. It has apostolic authority. And then he says, and Timothy, our brother. So as you know, or may know, Paul, he had an eye problem. And we assume it was an eye problem uh, because he was blinded on that road to Damascus. And he was blind for several days after. And, and he was healed of his blindness. So he was able to, his sight returned. But he had some kind of affliction, and most scholars feel that it was an affliction of his eyes, that it was difficult for him to see, and it was something that was so afflictive that he asked the Lord three times, remove this from me, and the Lord said, no, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So it's going to be there. And, and so we feel that Paul had this affliction of semi-blindness or partial blindness, or it was just difficult for him to see. So Paul, at the end of his writings, would actually use his own hand and write, and we don't know what kind of letters, and say, okay, and some of his letters say, all right, now I, Paul, am actually going to sign this at the end of this letter so that you see my own handwriting and that I actually am, you know, put my seal of approval on this, and he signs it at the end. But for most of the writing of his letters, he had to use secretaries. So he says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, my secretary, we're writing this together. And so the way that I envision it happening is Paul, whether he was standing or sitting, I figure he was sitting because, you know, he had bad legs. He'd been, you know, left for dead several times and shipwrecked and stoned and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, he probably liked to sit when he could. 
And I, I imagine him sitting, and I imagine Paul beginning to, under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God being borne along by the Holy Spirit as a ship on the water, beginning to speak, and Timothy's writing. Timothy's recording what Paul is saying. Now, as they're writing, Paul generally is going through his doctrinal statements, his teaching, his, this is what I want you to do, this is who you are, this is how we need to act, and this is what I'm doing in response to all that, and so we get all the teaching of Paul, and, and he goes that way. So, for instance, in verse 9, he, he talks about them earlier, uh, this is, you're, you're standing in Christ, this is how you came to Christ, and then verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, and then he goes through this prayer for them, which would be great for y'all to memorize, by the way, this prayer in Colossians chapter 1, starting with uh, verse 9, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Hey, wouldn't that be a great thing to pray? Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. What a great thing to pray. That we may please him in every way, bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. All right. Memorize this, okay? Just memorize this. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And he goes on through this prayer and then he says, Verse 13, for he, God, the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then I, I just imagine in my mind that there's this pregnant pause because Paul has just mentioned the passion of his life. Jesus, the Son, in whom we have forgiveness of sins. And there's this pregnant pause as Paul is overwhelmed with the wonders and the glories of Christ. And, and as I just play this out in my mind and envision it, and I can see this happening, Timothy, who's been with Paul for quite a while and has been through this drill before, and sometimes Silas is with him. Sometimes it's Silas doing it by himself. Sometimes it's Luke that's helping him write it. Sometimes it's a combination thereof. But Timothy happens to be the one here right now, and he hears this pregnant pause, and he's like, Lord, help me, because I know what's coming. The train is coming. The train of glory is coming. The train of the doxology of Paul is about to be launched. Lord, help me keep up. And Paul then launches as he's filled with the wonders of Christ, just as he's paused to ponder Christ, he says, the Son. And I imagine right now Paul's just getting up and he's starting to walk around. The Son. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Paul is not stopping so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Where was I, Timothy? 
Wait, oh, that's right. Once you were alienated from God and were enemy, and it goes back into, but that's the doxology of Paul. And as you read through the scriptures, and if you bear in mind this kind of thing, you'll see it more and more. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We see it there again. We see the same thing happening, and it's all through the writings of Paul. Philippians chapter 2, again, Mr. Timothy is with him, and he's just laying it out and breaking it down for them. This is how I want you to live. Make my joy complete in verse 2 by being like-minded, have the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, oh, here we go again, have the mind of Christ. Pregnant pause. Timothy, all right. I got to get ready. Here it comes, and it comes. Christ. Paul goes off. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed hold of, something to be stolen to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he goes back into his teaching again. All right, this is how I want you to act in light of all this. The doxologies of Paul. If you turn over to Hebrews, just real quick, chapter 1. The entire book of Hebrews is a doxology. The entire book is a doxology. I don't know who wrote it. Nobody knows. Some people feel Paul wrote it. I kind of lean that way. Others feel, you know, Priscilla and Aquila. I'm fine with that. We don't know who wrote it, but they started out just normal. In the past, verse 1, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And then Hebrews launches into a doxology that goes all the way through chapter 13. All the way through chapter 13. His son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. And so... He launches into all of these things. So in Hebrews, we see that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And then throughout chapter 1, we see that Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to the angels in chapter 1. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, as you read through it, Jesus is the superior man. 
He's God. He's superior to the angels. In chapter 2, he's also the superior man. In chapter 3, now keep in mind, Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. So the writer of the Hebrews is laying up all of the things that the Hebrew nation, that the Jewish people hold most dear. The things that are, I mean, they were all into angels. Remember, Paul kept warning about that. They're all into angels. They're all into uh, Moses, and that's what's coming up. All these different things that were so important to the Jewish nation. In chapter 3, Paul says, hey, or I, I said Paul, but I don't know. Hey, he's superior to Moses. Chapter 3, he's superior to Moses. Chapter 4, he provides a superior Sabbath rest. The seventh day of creation God saw all that he created, saw that he was good, it was good, and he rested. And that became a picture of the rest that is ours when we come to Christ. We can rest in Christ. He's superior to their Sabbath rest. In chapters 4 through 8, he is the superior high priest, the Aaronic priesthood has nothing to compare to the priesthood of Christ. In chapter 9, he is the superior tabernacle. Chapters 9 and 10, he's the superior sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats over and over again could not satisfy the eternal demands of an eternal God, but the blood of Christ is superior to the blood of those bulls and goats, and it was the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Jesus, the superior sacrifice. In chapters 10 through 12, Jesus is our superior example. Remember chapter 11 of Hebrews? It's the hall of faith, right? All from Abel all the way down through the prophets of old, the hall of faith. Jesus it's a superior example, even to all of those, because it says in chapter 12, verse 1, but now, looking under Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of that faith, they all were men and women of faith, but Jesus is the author and the perfecter of that faith. Looking unto him, who for the joy that was set before him, he despised the cross, he scorned the shame, he endured it because of that joy that was set before him. Therefore, all of us, Let's lay aside those weights that so easily hinder us and the entanglements of sin and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Jesus, the superior example. And finally, in chapters 12 and 13, Jesus will give us a superior city, a new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that exists now, that's existed for thousands of years, is an echo of a city whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10, the new Jerusalem that is waiting to be unveiled before us. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Jude verses 24 and 25, and you could turn there. Jude verses 24 and 25. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, gave us a doxology at the end of his little letter of 25 verses. The whole book, the whole chapter is about false teachers and contending for the faith and on and on. And it's, it's a wonderful book. It's fun to break down. 
Uh, and, uh, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Jude didn't start out to write about false teachers. He wanted to talk about this, this glorious salvation that we share. But, oh, man, I got to talk about false teachers because they're infiltrating the church. We got to talk about them. We got to identify them. We got to know how to deal with them. And then finally, Jude is able to get back to what he really wanted to talk about, and that's in verse 24 and 25. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Sorry, I said it the way my grandpa used to say it as he quoted it in the old King James. My grandpa closed every sermon with both hands raised and in his Scottish accent quoted those verses the doxology of Jude, and it just has been a part of my DNA ever since. But I want you to know one thing, one thing about this verse. It says here in verse 24, he, Jesus, is able to keep us from falling, and he, Jesus, is going to present us before his Father's glorious presence with, what does it say? Without fault and with great joy. And the old King James said, exceeding joy. I've known that verse all my life, but it really wasn't more than uh, maybe two years ago when I, I actually broke it down. It's a different word than a normal word for joy. I'm just going to tell you what it means. You look it up in Strong's Concordance, you'll see it. It means wild joy. That's what it means. Jesus cannot wait to see us, to gather us up, and to take us home, and with literally a wild joy is going to present us to the Father. Here they are. That's how he views us. That's what he thinks of us. Jesus is going to present us to the Father with this abandoned joy. Now let's look over at John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, the letters of John, and the book of Revelation which he wrote are also filled with doxologies. And John starts out with one of the most well-known doxologies of all, one that we quote often one that we refer to often because it really gives us a complete picture of who Jesus is. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down in verse 14, we see that that word who was with God and was God and existed from all eternity past became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
so many things to talk about that. It would take a lifetime to break it down. And, and, and really, it's taken 2,000 years, and we still don't fully comprehend what that means. But this is what we see. We see that Jesus is eternal. We see that Jesus is the creator. We see that Jesus is life. We see that Jesus is light. And we see that he is incarnate, which means he came in the flesh. He became man. So much in there to break down. Jesus, all God and all man in one person. John's doxology that he begins with. And let's look over at the book of Revelation. Chapter 1. Because John, there's a, quite a thing going in the book of Revelation, doxology-wise. Let me tell you why. When we, when we think of the book of Revelation, I mean, typically, come on, just be honest. What do we think about? We think about judgment. We think about, we think about the, the, the scroll being opened, the seals being broken, and the seven judgments, and then the trumpets, and then the bowls being poured out. And we think about the tribulation period, the seven years. We think about the beast and the false prophet and the great dragon and the woman uh, the woman who gives birth to a son and the, and the, and, and the woman, the, the mother of harlots, the Babylon, and, and it's all, and then the, 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 the king that comes and the new heaven and the new, we think of all of that, right? That's, that's kind of just the, the seed of the book of Revelation, but mostly we think about this word that we call the apocalypse, and when we think of the apocalypse, that's what we think of. We think of the last days and the judgments to come, the apocalypse. Well, revelation means a word. It's a word that we understand the meaning of. But apocalypse, we just, boom, automatically go to last times, judgment, you know, demonic activity, the end days, and the return of Christ and all that. Apocalypse, the word apocalypse is a Greek word. You know what it means? The unveiling. It, this entire book, is the unveiling of Christ. It is about him. It's about Jesus. So when we read this book of Revelation, we have to understand that we are seeing Christ unveiled. And indeed, beginning with chapter 1, John saw Christ unveiled. In fact, it was, wow, this was the, the apostle that was the closest to Jesus. This is the one that leaned on his you know, shoulders at the Last Supper. This was the one that... Uh, uh, that just, you know, went right up to, to him at the, just hung with him at the trial. This was John. This was the one that went up on, on, on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and survived that, you know, got a glimpse of Jesus as a bolt of lightning, and it was all good. But this, in chapter 1, if you look further down chapter 1, Jesus, uh, John is confronted with Jesus unveiled. And what happens to John? Well, he's 90-something. But he falls over as though dead. He witnesses the unveiling of Christ, and it's powerful. And it is 
beyond anything that he's ever seen or understood before. But I want you to notice verses 7 and 8. Because this is where we're going to go. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You can fill in those blanks. The one who is and who was and who is to come. It's hard to understand what that means because we live in time. And so we break down those words in time. Okay, Jesus is, that's I guess referring to him like at the time that that was written or time that we're in right now, and he was, so there was a time back then, and he was that, and he is to come, so there's a time in the future that there's, you know, whatever's going to happen there, but it's all written in the present. All of those verbs, those verbs there, were actually in the presence. It, it, even the was is, is written as if it's in the present. The is, the was, the is to come to him, the present Everything is the present. He lives outside of time. Our God, our Lord, Jesus, lives outside of time. Little rabbit trail. You want to know why and how your prayers are effective before a sovereign God? If you look over at Revelation, I think it's chapter 8, and we won't look there right now, but I think it's chapter 8. You'll see that in the timeless halls of heaven with the God who is outside of time, our prayers ascend to his throne room in his timeless halls. It's there in that chapter. And his altar that is before his throne on which is incense and burning coals, our prayers are taken and they are gathered along with the incense and the burning coals before the throne of God into this bowl. Then they are cast out over the earth to fulfill his sovereign purposes. I don't know how this works, but all I know is that our prayers enter into his timeless halls and are woven into his eternal plan. We need to pray according to his will, according to his word. We need to be uh, pure in our hearts. And our prayers are woven into God's eternal counsel. Now, let's get back to this one who is. Jesus, the one who is. In John chapter 8, verse 58, we see... This situation where the Pharisees are fussing at Jesus, they're having a they're having a, a, a back and forth. Abraham is introduced into the conversation, and uh, Jesus makes a comment about Abraham, saying, "Hey, you know what? Abraham, he's not your father. You know, your father's the devil." Okay, and and they don't like camp on that part of it. 
they're like, wait, well, hold on, hold on. You're acting like you actually knew Abraham. You're acting like you actually lived back then. You're not even 50. Something wrong with you. And in verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And you know what? They knew what he was saying, and they're looking for rocks to stone him. And it wasn't time. Jesus is. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is. Jesus is the triune creator God of the universe who is the supreme sovereign over all things. Jesus is the seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the enemy's head. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the covenant maker of Abraham and the covenant keeper of Abraham. Jesus is the wrestling God who took a reprobate like Jacob and fought him all night long and broke him and then lifted him up and gave him a new name and a new identity and a new purpose. Jesus is the wrestling God, and he'll wrestle you. And he's wrestled me, and he's not done. Jesus is the voice that spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. And Moses says, okay, who shall I say sent me? And he said, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And what he was meaning was, all that I am, I will be to you. That's Jesus. Jesus is the conquering warrior that stood before Joshua and said, take your shoes off, get down on your knees, you're, in, you're on holy ground, and we're going in to conquer the land. Jesus is the conquering warrior. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer from the book of Ruth. Jesus is the mediator that Job cried out for in, in Job chapter 16. In all of his trials, in all of his torment, he finally said, if only there was someone who could stand before God with power and authority and represent me and could understand me and my weakness. Jesus is that mediator that Job cried for. Jesus is all through the Psalms. He's the shepherd. He's the shield. He's the strong tower. He's the one under whom's, whose wings we rest. Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is the suffering servant and the conquering king of Isaiah. Jesus is the ancient of days of Daniel. Jesus is the heartbroken husband of Hosea who was married to this woman who left him for other men, not for a man, but for other men. And he left his home 
and searched for her till he found her a slave. She had been enslaved by those that she had left him for. And he found her. And he paid the price for her ransom. And he set her free. He brought her home. That's Jesus. Jesus is the the king and the lion of the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the ox and the servant of the gospel of Mark. Jesus is a son of man of the gospel of Luke. And Jesus is a son of God of the gospel of John. Jesus, from the gospel of John, is, as we've seen, the creator, the eternal one, the life, the light, the incarnate one. He is the shepherd. He is the door. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Jesus is all of those things. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, John is taken up on the Lord's day to the throne room. And he's in the throne room. And he sees one on the throne. And this is in chapter 4. And he can't see an image. It's the invisible God. But he sees the, the, the halo of life around him. He sees the vestments on him. And he sees just the the holy, unapproachable glory of the invisible God, and he sees in front of the invisible God the four living creatures who never cease to cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Day and night for 24-7, for all of eternity, they cry that cry, well, from the time they were created, and the 24 elders who stand before the throne and then take their crowns off their feet and cast them, and they themselves are so desiring to get down on the ground and worship him that it literally says they cast themselves, they threw themselves down on the ground to worship this almighty invisible God. And John is in awe of what he sees. And then in that throne room scene, there's a, there's a scroll that is brought and there's seven seals on it and they're looking and they're looking for somebody that's found worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals and nobody's there that can be found, nobody worthy. And, and John, he's just weeping and he's crying. He's going to Mr. Angel, Mr. Angel, can't you? Is there nobody that can open the scroll? And as he's weeping and crying and, and trying to figure out who can open the scroll, he hears something. He hears with his ears. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, he is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And he hears us with his ears, but he's crying and he's looking at Mr. Angel. And then as he hears that with his ears, he hears about majesty and power and glory and honor. And then he looks and he sees a little lamb that had been slain, but that was alive. And all of heaven resounds to the glory of that lamb who was slain from before the foundations of the earth. And they praise and honor Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That is who he is. And he is the king who will return someday. 
catch us up and bring us back to glory and fit us for battle and get us ready for him to return back to earth and to establish his rule and his reign and eventually his new heaven and his new earth and to bring us with him and to bring us to that place where it says he, Jesus, will be the light. There'll be no more need of the sun, or the moon, or the stars. No need of lamps because the light is there and his name is Jesus and there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow. We will be with him forever. That's who he is. That is this Jesus that we know and we love and we worship. Let's stand.